We have a great, great, great team working on these skits and this drama team. And I really appreciate them and their leadership and their involvement. And that was a really great dramatic reenactment of Acts chapter 2, which we're going to be preaching on today and next Sunday. And I love how many of you were involved in that as well. Uh, At this point, we're going to go to Acts 2, but children may be dismissed to junior church. Um, Children, make your way to junior church. Acts 2 is happening because of a few things. Jesus died as our ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He went to the cross for us and he rose again. Jesus' resurrection changed everything. Jesus' substitutionary death, he substituted substituted himself in our place. He lived the life we could not live, sinless, died the death we could not die on the cross, taking the wrath of God in our place, and, and, and and he rose again. Changes everything. Heard about this man, he was on vacation in Jerusalem with his family. And his mother in law suddenly died. He went to make arrangements to take the body back home. The consulate said it would cost $5,000 to have the body shipped. This isn't a real story, just so you know, because I thought I should have entered that first, okay? The consulate said it would cost $5,000 to have the body shipped, but he, could, but, but he could have her buried there in Jerusalem for just $150. $5,000 to ship her back home or $150 to have her buried there in Jerusalem. The man thought about it a moment and said, no, I'd like to have her shipped. The constant said, wow, you must have really loved your mother-in-law. He said, no, it's not so much that. I just remember a case here years ago when they buried someone and on the third day he rose again. And I can't take that chance. (laughs) Obviously, that's just a bring some humor in, but the resurrection changed everything. Jesus took our sins on the cross. He rose again because he lives. We too will live again, including that man's mother-in-law. If he, if if she knew the Lord, because Jesus lives, we too will live again. In in Acts chapter one, Jesus ascended into heaven. And now Acts chapter two, Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, which we'll spend two Sundays on, uh, the day of Pentecost, actually maybe even three. Several years ago, I was watching Dateline on NBC. Any of you ever watched Dateline? I, I think most of the episodes of Dateline are about uh, some husband and wife where things go sour and one of them kills the other one. I think most of them. I heard a comedian last week say, if you watch enough Dateline and you're sitting there with your, with your spouse watching Dateline, eventually you have to look at each other and say, are we doing okay? <laughs> you, have, you have to do a little check up there. Are we doing okay? But I was watching Dateline and this particular episode of Dateline was not about husband and wife's, you know, killing. It was about Mount Everest. Mount Everest, 29,000 feet high. And people go to climb this mountain. One particular year, something like 10 or 12 years ago, was the deadliest climbing season of the history of climbing Mount Everest. As I watched it, I heard about how they have a small window of time when they could climb from the last camp to the very top of Mount Everest. They just have a small window of time climbing from the last camp to the very top of Mount Everest. And and in this particular year, some didn't finish in time, so they faced very bad weather, 
as they came down. Some didn't finish at all. The, the weather is so bad that some ended up dying. They said the wind was hurricane force wind and the temperatures were something like 15 degrees below zero. 15 degrees below zero. Now I would think it'd be colder, but either way, 15 degrees below zero, hurricane force winds. And you have that thin oxygen because you're way up close to 29,000 feet high. As I watched it, I thought, that'd be really cool. I want to climb Mount Everest someday. <laughs> Not really, but I don't know how these people get the time and resources to do that. But anybody who has been in severe weather, especially a tornado, talk about the sound you know, of, of the tornado, obviously the wind, you know, I grew up in the Dayton area, and we always talked about the Xenia tornado, which was, uh, you know, one of the worst in, in, in history. And we can see what wind can do. And then you can think of the great winds of hurricanes. You know, I bet you've heard the stories of the wind as well. Maybe you've lived through some horrible situations like that. Most of you know, I like to do a little bit of running. And if the wind is really bad and you are running or biking or doing things outside, it totally changes things. And and a few years ago, 2013, I was training for my first marathon, which I really didn't set out to train. I just kept running longer and longer and thought I'll sign up for the Cincinnati marathon. And I would be running many times. I'd be running a certain direction and everything would be good. Wind would be behind my back. I didn't realize it, but it was behind my back. And then I would turn north and then turn a different direction west and everything would change. It was the wind. One particular time, I'm running a certain direction. I'm running, I think I was running east, and everything's good. I'm actually sweating. I'm wearing layers, but it was winter. I'm sweating. I've got gloves on, but I end up taking them off and holding them because I'm warm. Turn north, things are still good. Turn back west, freezing. Somebody actually stopped me. He was driving by me. I was driving a Hartley, jogging on Hartley Road. They stopped. They said, how far do you run? I saw you on Georgetown Road. And I started talking. I realized I was so cold. I started, you know, my lips were chattering. Wind, that was all wind. Going the other direction, I was warm. Wind can make cold air worse. Wind can pick up fires and spread them. Wind makes the snow hard to keep off the streets. And wind can be totally, completely dangerous. But how often have we wanted a nice breeze on a hot day? Today, we're talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. And as we had that sound effect with that skit, the Holy Spirit came upon the church like a mighty rushing wind. Prior to the Holy Spirit's descent upon the church, they heard a mighty rushing wind. And so we're now in our fourth sermon on the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we began with uh, four sermons ago. In today's sermon, we're looking at Acts 2, 1 through 13. And we are going to look at the Holy Spirit's descent unto the church. I want to show you that the Holy Spirit came upon the church, fulfilling Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And get this, the Holy Spirit never left the church. The Holy Spirit came upon the church, fulfilling Acts 1, 8, when Jesus said, you will receive peace power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit came upon the church and the Holy Spirit never left the church. We have the same Holy Spirit today in the church as they had then. We still have that same power to be Christ's witnesses. So um, the narrators read 
the passage, but I'm gonna reread parts as we talk about them. We see the spirit descends in Acts chapter two, verses one through four. Let's look at them. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Isn't that really cool? The Holy Spirit comes upon, they're sitting in a house when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And imagine the wind, it just, it says it just filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then the divided tongues as of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And a demonstration of this filling, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You notice something? This verse simply says, when the day of Pentecost had come. Some churches make it a huge deal celebrating the day of Pentecost every year. We know when it, when it was. It was 50 days after Passover, and they would celebrate it every year. You all wear red, and you do special things, and you, know, you make a big deal about it. It's the birthday of the church. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. It was a Jewish holiday. The day of Pentecost was an annual feast that followed the Feast of First Fruits by what would be called a week of weeks. And that, in other words, it's seven weeks or 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And therefore, it was called the Feast of Weeks. You can find that in Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 22. The name Pentecost is of Greek derivation, and it means 50, because it was, 50, it was the 50th day after the First Fruits Feast. You can find that in your Old Testament, Leviticus 23, 16. This was a Jewish celebration. This was a Jewish feast, and it was a huge deal. They were all supposed to commute, to come to Jerusalem for the feast. The disciples are all there. They're in one place. We don't know where they, uh, where they were for sure. They might have been in the upper room where they were in the previous chapter. We don't know for sure. We also do not know how many people were there. We know it was at least the 12 disciples there, but in the previous chapter, it mentions 120. So it could have been 120 men plus women and, and who knows, children and others. We're not really sure. I actually favor that there were about 120 people present there in a large upper room, and they hear a loud noise. That's that wind. That's that wind. Megan and I got married uh, almost 21 years ago. And we lived in an apartment for a while, and then we thought it'd be a good idea to look at buying a house. Fortunately, somebody, our youth pastor, had recently moved to another church, and he, he said, hey, you could rent our house. And that was better than buying a house at that time, because I don't like owning a house now, to be honest. He has too much upkeep. And uh, so we rented his house, but he lived in the middle of the country, northwest of Dayton, Greenville area, down a quarter-mile lane in this 130-year-old farmhouse. And if you know Western Ohio, it is flat. I like that. It's beautiful. This area is beautiful too, but it's nice to have a change in scenery. It is flat. One thing I noticed as soon as we moved out there to rent that house from them is the wind. The wind, you could be just sitting inside the house. It doesn't appear to be a windy day, but you could hear the wind just rushing around the house. You get a big snowstorm. You could see the way the wind drifts the snow around the house, the wind. So just imagine the disciples here gathered. They're inside a house at this point and they hear the wind as the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. They hear this noise. The noise comes from heaven and it says it happened suddenly. 
It happens suddenly. Don't miss those words like suddenly. This happens suddenly. It is surprising. Jesus has already said, stay put until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And now it's happening. It's taking them by surprise. It's happening suddenly. It was unexpected. The noise filled the whole house where they're sitting. The idea that it came from heaven, it could mean that it came from heaven where God's at, or it could just mean it came from the atmosphere. You know, it, they, they use heaven in three different ways in the Jewish context back then. Where God resides is one way of using heaven. The atmosphere is another and outer space is another. Verse three mentions these tongues of fire. These tongues of fire. Remember the Old Testament? Remember Moses in the burning bush? At that time, Moses saw a bush on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. That's in Exodus chapter three. I think that image is here. The fire comes down and it's dispersed upon the disciples, but the fire doesn't consume them. And this probably happened in like a split second or two. The fire comes down, it's, it's, it, it comes upon the disciples and it doesn't consume them. Get this, this is really interesting. Fire and wind were always signs of God's activity in the Bible. Fire and wind were always signs of God's activity in the Bible. And so we see those signs of what God is doing right here. It is possible that the fire and tongues only happened to the disciples, but it's also possible that this happened to the others as well. They then speak in other tongues. There are two views on tongues. One view is this Holy Spirit-filled gift of tongues is more of a prayer language or, or a babble. The other one is that the gift of tongues is a known language. Either way, most all agree, if not all agree, right here, this gift of tongues is a known language. It's a, as you look at the context, the disciples, all those gathered, are supernaturally translating Peter's message into languages that they don't know but languages that the other people knew. And why was that important? We see that in the next uh, seven or so verses, nine or so verses, actually. We, it was important because all these people from all these other countries are present. And what are they present for? They're present for Pentecost. It seems as if the disciples plus a number of people are in, the upper, are in, this, in this room and they're gathered together. And when the, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, it makes such a commotion. Everybody on the streets hears it and they come outside and that's when Peter begins preaching. They come outside. So the beginning of this passage takes place in a room and then starting in verses five and following, it's outside in like a temple courtyard type of area. I once was listening to a tape. It was in a, in a class at Asbury Seminary. And in this particular tape, uh, it was a live recording of a message at a church in an Eskimo area. This was an Eskimo village where they were dealing with intense alcohol abuse, in addition to alcohol abuse, uh, spousal abuse, and, and, and all, types of, all types of criminal activity. And they were praying for revival, praying for revival, and praying for revival. And this prayer service was actually on a, on a cassette tape. And I heard the tape. And at the time when they're praying, it's recorded on the tape, there's a mighty rushing wind. And revival began. Many, many, many people in that small Eskimo village were saved and things started to change. Because when Jesus enters our life, he changes us. 
So the whole village started to change. And it began just like this day of Pentecost with a mighty rushing wind. I heard it on a cassette tape. It was really, really, really awesome. So in verses five through 13, we see the details of what happened. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. They're confused because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's the gift of tongues. They're speaking in languages they don't even know. And they were amazed and they were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And now it gives a list of these different people groups, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine, which is the best wine. It means probably higher alcohol content wine too. In the next several verses, we see there are people from all these different countries. A Jewish historian named Josephus records that at, during the day of Pentecost, during this Pentecost celebration, Jerusalem's population would swell to 3 million people. Now, I don't know if that's an exaggeration by Josephus, but even if it is, Jerusalem's population would swell. All these people were coming for the Feast of Pentecost. And at the Feast of Pentecost is when God chose to give the Holy Spirit to the church. Now, 50 days previously was Passover. And at Passover is when Jesus became our perfect Passover lamb. And what happened at Passover? Jewish people from all these different regions came to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's population would swell at Passover, and Jerusalem's population would swell at Pentecost, and God did awesome miracles at both of those. Now, Jesus had to die and rise again at Passover because he was a Passover lamb. I don't know whether Pentecost had to happen and the Holy Spirit coming upon the church at Pentecost or not, but God did it at this time. And all these people, all these people are gathered for the feast, and they all witness the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. Peter begins to preach. We'll look at that more next week. And at the end, some 3,000 people were saved. Verse seven says that the people were amazed and bewildered. They were wondering why all these people, aren't they all Galileans? Now, Galileans had an accent. They had a specific way of speech. One person writes, Galileans had difficulty pronouncing gutturals and they, have the ha they had the habit of swallowing syllables when speaking. So they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being provincial. You can see that in Mark 14, 70. Therefore, since the disciples who were speaking were Galileans, it bewildered those who heard because the disciples could not by themselves have learned so many different languages. They looked down upon the disciples of Galile as Galileans and they thought, how do they know all these languages? But it was a miracle that God was using to bring more people into the kingdom. Through verse 11, we see many places listed that were represented. Now, this is really interesting. Note, all of these locations are gonna show up through the rest of the book of Acts. 
Starting in, the, in this chapter, all these people from different regions are being saved. They go home, they take the gospel with them. Later, of course, Peter starts going to different areas. Paul starts going to different areas. All these locations show up on Paul's missionary journeys in Acts 13 and 14 and 15. All these locations are areas where they're gonna hear the gospel. There's a great book, I would highly commend it to you. It's called The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. Now, Lee Strobel has written many case for books. He was trained as an, as an attorney and then a criminal, a criminal justice type reporter in Chicago. He was a militant atheist and his wife became a Christian. He was angry with her. He was like, we don't get into that. And he was angry with her. And so he starts studying Christianity like he would study a crime scene. And he eventually becomes a Christian, and that's recorded in the case for Christ. Well, he's applied that same type of tactic to other books. And in the case for miracles, which came out around 2018 and 19, he investigates miracles all over the world. He also, by the way, has a section on when God does not heal. But his investigation shows a lot of the miracles are happening where God is about to do something amazing and new in areas where the gospel has not been heard and a lot of people are about to be saved. So certain areas of Africa where, or either other areas, you know, where the gospel maybe has not been proclaimed or has not been proclaimed that much recently. And the miracles are there to attest to the validity of the gospel. The miracles are about Jesus, not about the person being healed or the person with the miracle. It's about Jesus in proclaiming the validity of the gospel. And that's the case throughout the book of Acts. The miracles are showing who this Jesus is. The miracles are showing this is the real deal. That's what's going on. We also see that in the gospels. We talked about in my Sunday school class today. Verse 12 shows that many were amazed. Verse 13, but some were not. Some rationalized it. We must never do that. We see God's doing something amazing, something new, and we rationalize it. Uh, that's not that amazing. That's not amazing. That's not that great. I got to watch that. I'm a pretty rational person, very logical, not very emotional. But you got to be careful with that. Give God glory. Give God praise. Spread the word. Don't put it down. Some rationalized it, but many were amazed. Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And we're going to talk about Peter's sermon next week. John Piper provides a, the following really helpful illustration of the Holy Spirit before and after Pentecost. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was mainly uh, exercising his authority and his work uh, in, in the Jewish groups. From time to time, the Holy Spirit would descend upon Samson in the Old Testament or David or, or the prophets or many others, and he would do something amazing through them. But it was mainly the Jewish groups. And what's happening here? The Holy Spirit is lighting up the nations, the Gentiles. That's really what Gentiles mean is the nations, the, the ethnicities. So the Holy Spirit is, is becoming more powerful and more spread out to all the people of the world. John Piper describes it like a huge dam for hydroelectric power under construction. He mentions the Aswan High Dam on the Nile. This dam is 375 feet high, 11,000 feet across, Egypt's president, Nasser, announced a plan for construction in 1953. The dam was completed in 1970. And in 1971, there was a grand dedication ceremony and the 12 turbines with their 10 billion kilowatt hour capacity were unleashed. 
with enough power to light every city in Egypt. Get that. They're unleashed. And I don't know if they can still light every city in Egypt or if that was just their time. But still, you got 10 billion kilowatt hour capacity. Now get this. So this is a big dam, all these turbines. It's on the Nile River. We know about the Nile River, you know, from the Old Testament and other places. It's on the Nile River. During the long period of construction, the Nile River was not completely stopped. They couldn't stop it. Even as the reservoir was filling, part of the river was allowed to flow past. This huge reservoir is filling up, but part of the river still has to flow past. The country folk downstream depended on the Nile River. They drank it. They washed in it. It watered their crops and turned their mill wheels. They sailed on it in the moonlight. They wrote, they, they wrote songs about it. It was their life. They couldn't shut down the Nile River. But on the day when the reservoir poured through the turbines, a power was unleashed that spread far beyond the few folk downriver and brought possibilities they'd only dreamed of. You see this? When the, historically, the Nile River just helped all those people along its banks. The Nile River helped all those along its banks. They could wash in it, they could fish, they could use it for their crops. But when those turbines were opened, when that reservoir started filling, the Nile River's power impacted all of Egypt, everyone. And the Holy Spirit's like that. Through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's power was felt and experienced by many throughout Israel. But at Pentecost, now and to this day too, the Holy Spirit's power is experienced by everyone who accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's the birthday of the church. In Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of God, he tells a story of Aisha, a 24-year-old Christian widow and convert from Islam. She's 24 years old. She's a widow. She's converted from Islam. She was so outgoing in her witness to Christ in the hostile environment of her Islamic town that the authorities arrested her and they put her in the dark, unfinished cellar of the police station. She's witnessing, so they arrest her. They put her in a dark, unfinished cellar of the police station. She's being persecuted. She's already a widow at the point when she felt she could take no more And she was about to scream. Instead, to her surprise, out of her mouth came a heart song of praise to Christ. She had the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was at work in her life. So even when she's being persecuted and she just wants to scream, out of her mouth came a praise to Christ. As she sang, she could tell the movement upstairs ceased. They were listening. Her persecutors were listening And now she's praising Christ. That night, the police chief came down and said he was taking her home on one condition. He said, you must come to my house in three days. Then he said, I don't understand. You are not afraid of anything. My wife and daughters and all the women in my family are afraid of everything. But you are not afraid of anything. He said, I want you to come to my house so you can tell everyone why you are not afraid. I want you to sing that song. How could she sing that song? Because she wasn't alone. She she was physically alone in that dark cellar, being persecuted for her faith, but she wasn't alone. The Holy Spirit was with her. 
And as Christians, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was with her, that was with Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that came upon the church right then is also with us. And we are never, ever alone. We have that power within us day to day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account, but we especially thank you for baptizing us, baptizing us, immersing us with the Holy Spirit. And Lord God, yet so many times we think, we believe, we act like we're in our own source of power. We, we're on our own. Remind us this week, Lord God, please. Remind us all this week. We're not alone. We're never alone as Christians. However, Lord God, I also pray that you would compel us to draw near to you through the body of Christ. Because it's one thing for me to be in my own prayer time with you, but how powerful it is when Christians come together with the power of the word of God, the power of the bride of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Draw us close to you. Draw us close to each other in sweet, sweet, sweet fellowship. And I pray, Lord God, that you would work within all of us for revival, renewal in our own lives, in our own families, in our own friends, in our own, in our own community. And we would see many around us come to know you as Lord and Savior. Use us to proclaim your gospel. Use us, like you used Peter in this passage and the others, the others, to proclaim the awesome things of you and renew us in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.